For the last 14 weeks, we've been looking at the life of David under the heading, Developing a Heart for God. I've enjoyed the study. We've got one more week after this, but I've enjoyed the study as, as we've got to know David a little bit more. Uh, hopefully that it's given us something that can help us develop a heart for God as well. And it's important for us to look at the life of David because how he lived his life has ramifications for how we are to live our lives as followers of Christ. Now, David was far from perfect. We know that. He was a flawed individual, and he made a lot of mistakes. But that doesn't mean we still can't learn from David in his life. Today, we look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. Uh, this is an addendum to the life of, of David. It's like the author is adding some things at, at the very end. And it kind of serves as a middle, military catalog of those individuals who served alongside David all the years that he was king. And as we, we look at these individuals today, it's going to help us understand how David was able to maintain his strength and to provide stability in the land of Israel, even in the midst of the turbulent times in which he served as king. You know, even though a person is developing a heart for God, it does not mean that they, they do not need people beside them. And, and I hope I haven't given you the impression that as you're out there to developing a heart for God and you're getting closer to God, that you don't need others. It's quite to the contrary. We still need individuals that can be there to support us, to encourage us, and to build us up in our faith. So that's what David did. David is going to surround himself with some individuals that are going to help him be all that he can be. We're going to look at these men today. They're called the mighty men of David. And we're going to glean some truths from them that will help us know what we ought to do as well. Now, the first thing to understand about these guys is they are just ordinary guys, ordinary individuals, but, but their reputations grow to heroic proportions by the way they live their lives. And so they're known as mighty men. They're known as heroes of the faith, you know, ever preserved for us in, in the Hall of Fame and in, in the Faith Hall of Fame because of how they handled difficult circumstances, the way that they lived their lives and by the insights that they provide us as we try to live lives of faith. We're going to look at these individuals, and we start out in looking at verse 8, and we're going to look at these, these words this morning under the heading, surround yourself with the right people. You're developing a heart for God. You want to surround yourself with the right people. So look at this passage. In verse 8, it begins, these are the, no, I'm sorry, these are the names of David's mighty men. Let's stop right there. Who are these guys? Where they come from? In order to understand who these men are, we got to go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 to see who these men are. You know the story. You know how David was on the run from Saul who was trying to kill him. And so David was hiding in various places in Israel, and he makes his way to a cave of Adullam. And listen to what chapter 22, verses 1 through 2 of 1 Samuel says. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. 
Notice how the writer describes them. They are in distress, in debt, or discontented. Now, that's the kind of people I want around me. People that are distressed, in debt, and discontented. But that's who these individuals were. Nothing spectacular about any of them. They were in distress, they were in debt, and they were discontent. But they gathered around David. David takes these individuals, and they choose to follow David before David was anything, before David was anything great, and even before they were anything to speak of. But here they are. And they become mighty men of David. Why? Because of the character that they gained from the lives that they lived and the decisions that they made. They became mighty men of God. And I think they help us understand who do we need to surround ourselves with if we're going to develop the heart for God. The first thing you're going to see is surround yourself with people who will do what's right even when the odds are against them. Let's look at verse 8 again. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tacklemanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. This first guy we see is Braveheart, Gladiator, and Rambo all tied into one individual. This is a bad dude. He is uh, the cream of the crop when it comes to fighting. It says he's a Tacklemanite, which literally means the one who is first. He's the one who is first. This is what it says about him, that he raised his spear and he killed over 800 men in one encounter. He killed 800 people. When the odds were overwhelming, when everything was against him, he stood his ground and he fought and he won the battle. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where the, the odds are against you? But, but you stood your ground and you did the right thing. You know, you, you do the right thing even though you may not survive if you do the right thing. You stand up for what is right. You stand up for what is true. This is the stuff that heroes are made of. Perhaps you think of a man by the name of Martin Luther who in the 1600s, he stood up against the Catholic Church and the power of the Catholic Church demanding that it be faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone. And he stood up against the might of the Catholic Church, and he stood his ground. Or perhaps you think of a man by the name of Martin Luther King, who, who gave his life for a vision that he had that one day his children would be judged by the character of their conduct and not the color of their skin. Or perhaps you think of a, of a man by the name of Nelson Mandela, who stayed 27 years in a South African prison until there was a democratic nation in South Africa. Maybe you think about these type of men who in the face of overwhelming odds, everything was against them. They stood their ground. But even on a more, a more definitive way, it's the employee who sees things going on under the table and behind the scenes, and he stands up and says, I refuse to be a part of that. Or maybe it's the spouse whose marriage is on the rocks. And this person's spouse refuses to get the help. But this spouse says, I will not give in. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this marriage right. And they don't give up. They don't give up. Or perhaps it's, a, it's, it's the teenager 
who knows if they go the way of the crowd, it will go against everything that the gospel stands for. It will go against everything that the Word of God stands for. And they decide to stand their ground, even though everybody's against them. They decide to stand their ground, and they decide to do what is right. Here's a word I want you to write in your Bible. If you write in your Bible, if not, write in your notes. Write out beside this man these words, no reserve. No reserve whatsoever. This man expressed a willingness to do what is right. And he holds nothing back. Uh, his sense of right, his sense of wrong is what drove him. He's a man of integrity, and his tenacity to do what was right was what drove him to accomplish the mission, even when everything was against him. Can I be honest with you? I think we've lost this trait some today. I think we've lost this, this ability to, to do what's right even when the odds are against us. I think it's at least true in the work of the church. I think in, in the church, we, we, we look at the task that's before us. What is the task? To win the world to Jesus. Amen? Isn't that the task? I don't know if you knew that, but in case you didn't, let me just refresh your memory. That's what it's all about. That's the reason God left us here. And when he saved us, he left us here for a reason. And it's so that we might be his witnesses. We might be his missionaries. We might be to his ambassadors to those who as of yet have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we look at the task. We say it's too overwhelming. Well, we can't do it. The odds are against us. And we just don't have the tenacity. We don't have the drive to do what needs to be done. Or we look at society as a whole. Why do we stand up for truth? Why do we do the things that we know we need to do? They're not listening to us. So what do we do? We hide behind our walls. Or we close ourselves up to society. And we never do anything. We need to have the tenacity. We need to be able to do what's right even when the odds are against us. I think perhaps you, you ought to take... Every morning, you ought to just take a few minutes of your time and write down the things which you should fight for. Write down the things that you should stand up to for. Take a stand and say, I have no reserve whatsoever. I will hold nothing back. You need to surround yourself with those people who will do what's right even when the odds are against them. Second truth, surround yourself with people who will stand with you when no one else will stand. Look at verses 9 through 10. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Aohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdaman for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Here's some things I want you to write. Some things I want you to underline. I want you to highlight in this verse. Three phrases. I want you to underline the first one. He was with David. Underline that one. He's with David. That means he's beside David is what that means in the original. He's beside David. Look at the next one. Israel retreated. That's the word I want you to write to underline. And the next one, he stood his ground. When you put it all together, you understand the situation. He was with David when Israel retreated and he stood his ground. 
He was with David when Israel retreated, and he stood his ground. So here's the situation. Here's what's happened. David's gathered around him all these men. Remember who they are. They're distressed, they're in debt, and they're discontent. He's gathered all these men. They're not mighty men. They're not an army. But David gathers them, gathers them up. The odds are against them. But here they are. And David gives his best brave heart speech to rally the men. And there they are fighting. All of a sudden, the Philistine army makes their way toward them. And David turns around. There's nobody there. The whole army has retreated except for this one guy. One guy who's with David when Israel retreated. But he stood his ground. And what does it say? He had his sword in his hand, and he would not back down. Right out beside this guy's name, the words, no retreat. No retreat. In the face of the enemy, in the face of the opposition, he refused to treat. Now, as a leader, you got to love that. you got to love an individual like that. That's called loyalty. When the odds are against them, this is the guy that stands his ground. And there's something about facing the foe together. There's something about when you're going up against a battle and you know you got somebody beside you. It's when it makes two more than two. And the Bible says that the Lord gave them a great victory that day. Make no doubt about it. The Lord gave them the victory. But here's what I want you to see. The Lord gave them the victory, but he chose to use people that would stand their ground to give them the victory. Oftentimes in the Bible, God gave a victory without people having to do anything. You know know the stories. The Bible talks about it. Moses, when he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt... They came to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is is hot on their heels, and they get to the Red Sea. Moses raises his arms, and the Red Sea parts. And it says that all of Israel went through on dry ground. When they got to the other side, Moses lowered his hands, and the entire Egyptian army was swallowed up in the sea. And it says that they saw their bodies the next day floating on the shore. Israel didn't have to do anything. Well, think about the battle of Jericho. God told Joshua and the men, march around the city of Jericho seven times, and on the seventh day, shout and blow your trumpets. And the walls came tumbling down, and they didn't have to do anything. God brought about a great victory to the children of Israel at the battle of Jericho. Well, think about another time when God told a man, Gideon, to lead the people of Israel, and Gideon gathered an army of 32,000 people. And God eventually dwindled it down to only 300 people. He says, now you're ready to go fight the battle. And they encircled the, the camp of the, of the enemy. And then they, they, lit the, they blew their trumpets and lit their torches. And they said, for the name of the Lord and the name of Gideon. And they routed the entire army without having to do any battle. Many times in the scripture, God gives victory. And the people don't have to do anything. They all knew the victories from God. But I think we sometimes think that God will give us victory in the same way. Now, we don't have to do anything. All we got to do is just sit back and watch, and God will give us the victory. Sometimes he does, but let me tell you what. Most of the time, he does not. God decides, I want to use people to accomplish my will. 
That's exactly what happens in this story. And look at it. The battle wasn't immediate. As a matter of fact, they fought for a long time. They fought so long that that Eleazar became tired. He became exhausted. He became so tired and so exhausted that the sword literally froze in his hand. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Being so tired at the end of the day, you have to pry your fingers loose to get the sword out of your hand. No retreat. In the face of surmounting odds, no retreat. I think God loves us when we will not give in. God loves it when we give him our all for him and we hold nothing back whatsoever. The scripture says that we are the love of our Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our might. It also says that we are living sacrifices and that we belong to God. And it says we were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The scripture says all of that, that we are to give it all to him. But it also says that God rewards persevering faith. He rewards those who keep on believing, who keep on fighting, and keeps on trusting that God will show up even when all the odds are against him. But they keep going on, no retreat whatsoever. The third truth we glean from this passage, surround yourself with people who will stand in the gap for those around you. Look at verses 11 and 12 of the passage. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hirat, When the Philistines banded together in a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Here's an individual that sees a field and decides, I've got to protect the field. Why? There were other fields. Why can't he just, okay, we'll just let this one go and I'll go and go to another field. Because notice what it says about the field. It was a place where it was full of lentils. In other words, it's ready for harvest. It's ready. And he says, if I don't defend this field, Israel's going to go hungry and many people are going to lose their lives because we refuse to defend this field. So he stood in the gap for those other individuals. And he stood his ground. It says that he got in the middle of the field and he fought off those individuals, he stood his ground in the face of that. Right out beside this individual, the words, no regret. No regret whatsoever. What would it take to live a life of no regret? What would it take? What would it take in the church to live a life of no regret? I tell you what, in the church, it means people stepping up and doing things when no one else will do it. You know, I've been pastor of this church long enough. I know who I can count on, and I know who I can't count on. You know, in the life of the church, it's those individuals who step up and do things for others. They stand in the, in the gap. We need more people stepping up. We need more people giving. We need more people serving. We need people that that will step up and serve on the committees. And I think it's appropriate that we're dealing with this passage about surround yourself with with the appropriate people. 
because we're right in that process of the year at a Baptist church where we start selecting teachers and we start selecting committee members to serve. Listen, we need people serving not just as warm bodies. We need people that really, really want to serve. And we need people that are teaching. Listen to me, nominating committee. We need people that teaching in our Sunday school classes that support the vision of the church, that support the vision of the pastor, support the vision of the staff, and most of all, support the vision that God has given the Great Commission. We got to have teachers that support the overall vision. They're not there just to, just to teach, teach. They're there to teach and inspire and lead that class to be on mission with God. So we need to think on those things. Committee, we need committee members that want to serve the church, not for a position or status. How can I use my gifts and my talents and my calling to better enable this church to move forward? We need committee members that support the vision of the pastor, support the vision of the church. God gives the pastor, God gives the staff a vision for the church, and the committees come along and say, how can we support that vision? How can we support that so we can accomplish what God has called us to do. Yeah, I know, that's going to rock your world because that's not the way we've done, always done it. I mean, when I first came to this church, I was told right off the bat, we're a committee-run church. I said, tell me what that looks like. Tell me. They couldn't tell me. I said, thank you. Thank you. We need to make sure we're getting the right people in those positions. And listen, we're an, we're an older, older congregation. Sometimes we're just thankful to have somebody that will serve some committee. But those days are gone. I would rather have three people serving on a committee that are faithfully committed to it than nine that just want to show up. But I'm meddling, and I'm, I don't mean to meddle. This is what they are. We need individuals that will step up and serve we need, people, we need people that will volunteer to drive the van to pick up our students. We've got Bob and Jackson here today. We've got other students that come for Sunday school and others that come for the second service. We need people that are committed to, to drive the van and pick up these students at Baylor. What an opportunity God has given us to impact the world with the students at Baylor University. And Truett Seminary, what an opportunity God has given us. We need people that will say, I'll stand up and pray. I'll meet on Saturday mornings. I'll come on Wednesday night. Uh, I'll gather at Tuesdays and, I, and I'll pray for the church. We need people that will pray. We need individuals that step up and pastor. I want to start a new ministry in the church. And I'll say, bless you. May your tribe increase. We need people that will step up. I've got a ministry idea. Let the people free so that they may serve God. We need people doing that. We need individuals that are willing to start a grow group in their home, much like the one we do on Tuesday night in my house. Grow, what does it mean? Gather, reach, obey, and worship. We need people that are gathering together in their homes, drawing friends and drawing co-workers and neighbors into their house to study God's Word, building relationships with individuals. We need individuals that would do that. What would happen or what would have happened in the passage if no one would have stepped up to defend the field, what would have happened? Well, I thought somebody else was going to do it. Well, I thought so-and-so was going to do it. And then nobody steps up to do it. But this individual said, I, I will do it. He did it on his own. He stood in the gap for those around him. I think we live in a day where people want what they can get out of the church 
instead of what they can put into the church. They want to celebrate the harvest, but they do not want to work in the harvest. Shema was not that kind of individual. What does it look like on a personal level? It looks like a great-grandma hearing that her great-grandchildren need a home and she adopts them and takes them into her house. It's a group of people in the church hearing that one of our members is having a hard time taking a shower because they can't get in the bathtub and they go over they tear out a bathtub and put in a shower, a walk-in shower for them to get in. Standing in the gap for others. It's a group of students coming from a, a, a church and, and, and coming into a community they do not know to build wheelchair ramps for those who need wheelchair ramps. It's a church hearing about the needs of another church during a hurricane season and collecting over $7,500 for a church they do not know and they will never meet so that they can stand in the gap with them as they endure the tragedies of a hurricane. That's the stuff that heroes are made of. That's the stuff that mighty men and mighty women are made of. We need to get back to that as a church, as a body of believers. We need to get back to the point that we stand in the gap for others. Here's what I do know. No good deed performed for the sake of others is forgotten by God. And we should seek opportunities to stand in the gap for others. We ought to live our life with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret. But there's one more story I want to look at in this passage. And it reveals this truth. Surround yourself with people who will be devoted to the one above them. Surround yourself with people who will be devoted to the one above them. Look at verses 13 to 17. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Now, this is not a story about a boss who demands his men risk their lives for his comfort. That's not what it is. What it is is a picture of a life of devotion to the one in authority over them. Here's what I want you to write out beside these men. No remorse. No remorse whatsoever. These men have gone from being distressed, indebted, and discontented to mighty men. To mighty men. David has let, helped them to live for something larger than themselves, and they are better because of what they've chose to do. It changed their lives. It changed their lives for the better. 
and they've lived a life of no reserve, no retreat, no regret, and no remorse for the one in authority over them. And because of that, no request was too small for them. Now, some might think that David dishonored these men by pouring out the drink. But when you understand the wording in this phrase, what David is literally doing, he's pouring it out as a sacrifice to the Lord for their service. He's honoring them. He says, I honor your service. I honor your commitment to the God in heaven. That's what David is doing. He's honoring their service. He's giving it to the Lord. Here's the truth I want you to glean from this passage, from these stories. The truth is that Jesus Christ came, and Jesus was known as the Son of God, but he was also called the Son of David. And centuries later, Jesus showed up on the scene, and Jesus invested his life in distressed, indebted discontents who fumbled and they bumbled through life. But after they met Jesus, everything changed for them. They came in contact with Jesus and their whole life was changed. And they watched their leader, they watched Jesus live a life of no regret, no remorse, no retreat, and no reserve. And he died on the cross for them. And he died on the cross for you and me. And those men turned the world upside down. Guess what? Jesus still wants to do the same thing today. He is calling to himself all those people who are distressed, indebted, and discontent. He's calling them to himself. And he's asking them to live a life of no reserve, no retreat, no regret, and no remorse for him and for his glory. There's two questions I want you to consider with this passage this morning. Trying to develop a heart for God. First question, are you or am I surrounding myself with the right people? First question you got to consider. Are you surrounding yourself with the right people so that you can be the person, the man or the woman that God wants you to be? Let me tell you something, folks. You're not going to find them down at the local sporting club. You're not going to find them on the lake. You're not going to find them at the golf course. You're not going to find them at, at, at a Baylor football game or a basketball game, men or women's. You're not going to find them there. You're not going to find them at the local bar. You're not going to find them at, at the local club. And you're not going to find them on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or, or uh, Twitter or, or some blog that you subscribe to. You're going to find them in the church. That's where you're going to find them. You're going to find them in the church. So are you surrounding yourself with the right people to help you be all that you can be in Christ? Second truth I want you to get from this. The second question I want you to ask yourself Am I the type of person others want to surround themselves with? We'd all like to think we are, wouldn't we? We'd all like to think, oh, everybody wants to be my friend. But are we? Are we? That's the question probably that most of us need to ask. If you notice something about these mighty men, 
they weren't a bunch of words. They didn't sit around and talk about their exploits. They did them. We don't need people of words. We need people of action that will do what God has called them to do so that we can be the people that God has called us to be. These were the mighty men of David. Why? Because they were men of action. And they accomplished so much. God accomplished so much through them. You want to develop a heart for God? Then surround yourself with the right people. People that will make you better. And hopefully that you can make them better as well. And listen, with those kind of people, God can change a city. God can change a county. God can change a state. God can change a country. God can change a world. He's done it before. He can do it again. In a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer. A time when we give you an opportunity to respond to what you heard. For some of you, that might mean, you know, kneeling and praying. Say, God, I want to be a mighty man for you. I want to be a mighty woman for you. God, show me what I need to do. God, show me where I need to go. Some of you need to do that. For others of you, maybe you need a church home, a place where you can be a part, a place where you can minister, a place where you can serve, where you can be a part of, uh, of others who, who, who are distressed, in debt, and discontent. But together, God can mold us into a mighty army. Together, God can make us mighty men and mighty women for Him. Some of you might need to do that. And ultimately, some of you might have said, you got to know Jesus. He's the captain of your soul. He, he's, your, he, he's the perfecter of your faith, the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Some of you need to come to him and admit that you need Jesus as Savior of your life. Whatever decision you make, we're going to invite you to come. I'm going to ask you to stand. Kip and the accompanist are going to come and play. We'll sing a closing hymn. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I lead us in prayer. Josh is going to make his way down. Marcy's going to come down. If you need somebody to talk with, we'll be here for you.